Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Around the Chinese New Year period, millions of Chinese migrant workers return home from jobs in China's major cities to their rural villages to visit their families. China's urban centers and factory towns rely on migrant workers from provinces like Guizhou, places that are still relatively underdeveloped despite the massive growth seen in China's coasts. The fact that this year, many migrants likely can't return home due to the COVID-19 pandemic is a reminder of the instability that defines much of these workers' lives. The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and the Future of the World by Dexter Roberts studies the lives of China's migrant workers, based on Roberts' 20 years of reporting from the country since it joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. The book combines big-picture analysis with on-the-ground reporting, using the story of the Mo family to reveal the underlying problems in China's economic model. Dexter Roberts is an award-winning writer and speaker on China, now serving as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Asia Security Initiative. He is also a fellow at the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center and an adjunct instructor in political science at the University of Montana. Previously, he was China bureau chief and Asia news editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, based in Beijing for more than two decades. He was reported from all of China's provinces and regions, including Tibet and Xinjiang, covering the rise of companies and entrepreneurs, manufacturing and migrants, demography and civil society, and politics and security. He is also reported from North Korea, Mongolia, and Cambodia on China's growing economic and political influence. He has also founded and publishes a weekly newsletter called Trade War. Today, Dexter and I talk about China's migrant workers and how their struggles reveal the the potential instabilities in China's growth model. We'll talk about what a migrant worker's life is like and how it may have changed in the past 20 years. So, Dexter, thanks you so much for joining me today. I want to start with the title of your book, The Myth of Chinese Capitalism. What's the received wisdom about China's economic model, and how does your book complicate that narrative? So the uh, well, the, the myth of Chinese capitalism referred to in the title of my book uh, really uh, touches on several myths. Uh, sort of the big one, which had been until recently the received wisdom, was that uh, China, starting you know forty years ago with reform and opening had uh, begun this process of opening its economy to the world, reforming it, and was on a path that would continue indefinitely in that direction. Well, uh, the myth now uh, becoming less, I should say, received wisdom as people around the world uh, start to look at China in a new way. But the myth had been that uh, this, this this process would continue indefinitely. What we've really seen, uh, particularly since 2012, when new leadership took over China, is uh, a, a, a real stalling of that reform process. And in many ways, uh, a step backwards towards a more state-run economy uh, that, that much more similar to what we would see in, in earlier days in China. Some of the other myths... Uh, and this is a big one, I think, and, and still believed, I believe, I, I think by many, uh, this idea that China's uh, middle class will keep inexorably getting larger and larger. And uh, this market that the big multinationals of the world have become very reliant on, uh, 
of ever larger numbers of Chinese consumers uh, will just will just keep getting bigger and bigger. The argument I make in my book is that for a whole bunch of reasons, which we'll talk about later, I think uh, this is just not happening. Uh, it's already started to stop, uh, and the uh, process of 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 converting, if you will. Uh, people from the interior of China, away from the coast, who come from uh, much more poor parts of the country, much more often still remoter parts, uh, into middle-class consumers is by no means a, a set conclusion. And I think I'd like, I remember seeing a map once of um, GDP per capita in Chinese provinces, and you see the massive disparity between the between the the coastal provinces and the economic engines of, you know, um, Guangdong and places like that with with the rural kind of hinterland. What does that urban-rural divide actually look like on the ground? Well, it's interesting. Uh, going way back, actually, when I really uh, when I first met these people that I write about in my book in the year 2000, uh, already back then there was this awareness uh, amongst the Chinese leadership that this that this growing gap between the coast and the interior was long-term. Uh, an economic problem. And uh, one of the first, I think the first time I ever made it to Guizhou, the province, the very poor and remote province uh, then, and unfortunately still today, that I write about in my book uh, was the year 2000. At that time, uh, then President and Party Secretary uh, uh, or General Secretary of China, Jiang Zemin, uh, had launched a policy called Develop the West. And that was uh, specifically a policy that aimed to, as, as the title suggests, develop the West and, uh, and raise living standards, raise incomes, and, and, and grow the economy in the West or in the interior of China. Well, you, you jump forward until today, these same issues are, uh, this is still of major concern of the Chinese government. You look at uh, the, one of the big sig signature domestic policies of the now General Secretary and President Xi Jinping, and it's been this battle against absolute or extreme poverty. And they've just declared victory. There's questions about that. But there's been this tremendous progress, which, again, has been aimed at trying to deal with these uh, these inequities or, or these differences between development and between income levels on the coast and in the interior. So there's still... Uh, one last thing I would say, uh, back in 2000, when I was writing about, when I first started writing about this Develop the West program, first went to Guizhou, one of the things that officials would tell one as a foreign journalist or any journalist trying to research this was average urban incomes uh, are about three times that of, of average rural incomes. And this is a sort of gives you a big picture look at this gap in China, which is much more extreme depending on if you look at Shanghai versus Guizhou, you're going to see a much larger difference than that. But in any case, overall, that was the gap. Well, fast forward again until today, that gap is still close to one to three. So all these years of effort, uh, earlier policies to try to redress this income and wealth gap between the coast and the interior, and they have made some progress, but nevertheless, that gap is still there. I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about, about because you talked about now the, the big picture view, I want to talk a bit more about some of your, your on-the-ground experiences, I think specifically, or I'd, I'd first like to ask, so you travel a lot to the to the village of Binghua in Guizhou. Um, I guess, what's that village like? How do people there live, and what are the living standards in, 
or, or how did you see the living standards perhaps change over the 20 years um, you were there? Uh, yeah, so Binghua Village is, uh, as, you're, as you say, yes, I, I, I write a lot about it in the book. I first went there in the year 2000, uh, and uh, actually not for the Develop the West story that I was working on, but for a separate story, ended up being a cover story for the publication I was working for, Business Week, called The Great Migration, looking at the migrant workers. And so that's when I first went to Binghua, the village of Binghua. It's, um, as I said, it's in Guizhou, which is was then and still is today uh, a province which is one of the poorest, if you look at it in terms of per capita incomes. Um, they are from, Binghua itself is in the southeast part of Guizhou, which is a beautiful, actually quite beautiful mountainous province, uh, a little bit like the the more famous karst landscape that you see down in Guilin in Guangxi province. Uh, the village of Binghua is actually near the border with Guangxi, uh, so it has a similar sort of topography. As I said, it's very beautiful. Uh, living standards have certainly gone up. Uh, when I visited in 2000 the first time, I actually had to take a, the very last part of the journey was by horse cart, and that was because the road, which was a dirt road, was so so muddy and and difficult to get through on that time of year that, that they didn't want to take a, a jeep over it. Uh, well, that road is far better today. Uh, there are a, a bunch of new three-story houses that were built basically from the remittances of the migrants who you know earned their money in the factories and construction sites and sent it back to their parents um, and, or then came back and, and helped their parents build these bigger houses. Uh, but some of those same problems or issues they face uh, are, are, are still there. So, for example, one of the big issues back in 2000 was what are the young people going to do? And other than uh, basically, other than subsistence agriculture, there wasn't much to do in the village of Binghua, and that's why they, they would all leave and go to become migrant workers. Uh, they're struggling with that same question today. What can young people do there? Uh, there isn't, it isn't clear uh, you know, what, sort of, what sort of income one can earn in this, uh, in, in, in the village of Binghua. So some of the major characters of your book, um, as you can call them major characters, are, are members of, of the Mua family. Um, you know, throughout the book, they, they're traveling back and forth. Um, some launch their own businesses. Some become party officials. Um, I guess, how did you meet this family? Um, what are they like? And what's driving the decisions they make about migration, employment, entrepreneurship? Um, and so on. How I met them is sort of a, just a your classic j- journalist in China story. I knew someone who knew someone who uh, introduced me to this up and coming party official who was from that town. Uh, at that point, he was working in a neighboring township and uh, was very eager to uh, introduce uh, a foreign and in this case, an American journalist uh, to his town. You have to keep in mind that this was the year 2000. It was one year before China was to enter the World Trade Organization. Everyone in China already knew that uh, China was going to enter the uh, most important in terms of getting into the WTO, the most important bilateral agreement, which was with the U.S., had been signed at the end of 1999. And at that point, uh, it was clear that China was entering. They even knew that it would be likely towards the end of 2001. So when I was there, 
the people in the village, the the party secretary, uh, sorry, the village sec- uh, village chief, and uh, this local party official who was from a you know working in a different uh, different township, uh, they were very eager to have a business magazine come and hopeful that uh, this would shine attention on their village and that ultimately uh, it might interest either Chinese or even uh, international investors to come and do something there and help the local economy. The big hope then was that they would get money for a vegetable and fruit processing factory. And that instead of doing this subsistence agriculture, they could actually move up the value chain a little bit and process their vegetables and fruit uh, uh, right there in the village and make some money and therefore create jobs so that young people didn't have to, to leave. So that was how, that was how I met them. Um, as you said, the, pretty much the whole village is surnamed Mo, which is pretty common in small villages in China, where people are all distantly related in a village and they'll share the same last name. Uh, they happen to be part of a, of a smaller ethnic minority group called the Bui. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a stunningly beautiful place. Uh, it's, as I said, not far from the border with Guangxi, it has uh, beautiful green, you know, beautiful green mountains, uh, dramatic landscape, uh, clean, fresh water. One of the ironies of, of, of Guizhou being poor and undeveloped is uh, it didn't get the industry that has created the pollution, both air and water pollution that you see in so many other parts of China. So it's quite, quite lovely and pristine. Um, that gets us to one of their one of their hopes today is that they can develop it as a uh, sort of an ecotourism destination. Uh, and that is, I think, would be, a, a, you know, it's a wonderful idea. It's a beautiful place. Uh, it's, as I said, there's no pollution there. So that's one of the things they've been focusing on uh, in recent years. Um, so I'd, I'd like to go kind of big picture again now, which is um, let's talk about the, the the challenges that Chinese migrant workers face. Um I guess in short, what are these challenges, not just in terms of, let's call it maybe economic stability, but also in areas like physical health, mental health, um, well-being. I guess what what are the challenges these migrant workers face as they're working in China's major cities? So the uh, I guess you could say the challenges have changed somewhat uh, back in the 2000s when I really started uh, focusing on the migrant workers and on the manufacturing sector and the factory life that they experienced uh, in China. The issue of extremely poor working conditions, not being paid according to legal requirements, uh, being forced in some cases to work uh, excessive hours. Uh, the, the, the classic sweatshop conditions were a very, very big deal for them. And, uh, 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 you know, you, you had your average migrant uh, living in a factory, um, often almost, in effect, uh, bonded to the factory. One of the common things they would have to do is hand over their identity cards, their IDs, when they came to the factory. Um, and the idea was... Uh, why, you don't ever need to leave the factory. We're going to provide a dormitory for you. It's going to be not very comfortable. We'll have up to maybe 12 migrant workers living in one room, sleeping in bunks, um, using a common restroom, uh, no air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, they were, in some cases, almost hostages They uh, in the factories. 
because they could get in trouble uh, if they were picked up by the local police without their IDs. So this has really changed uh, as a whole bunch of different things happened in China, uh, uh, among, among them, and in, in, in the manufacturing sector, among them, a big one was the rising wages and uh, workers started to be paid. Uh, it became, a, the sweatshop phenomena became less, less common and so on. Uh, today, the real issue that, they, that confronts them is uh, actually what kind of work they're going to do. Uh, many of the factory and construction jobs uh, are no longer available. One is because wages went up and a lot of these factories um, either moved up into the interior of China where wages were lower, or in many cases picked up and left the country altogether for Southeast Asia, for example, or Vietnam or India or Indonesia. Um, and in many cases, what they've done when they continue to manufacture, um, if they do have the money, they'll invest in automation. So they don't need as many workers as they once had. Uh, that means uh, those manufacturing jobs and often the construction jobs as well are, are not there in the numbers that they once were. So a lot of these workers have moved into the service sector. There are more migrants in China now working in the service industries than in manufacturing or on construction sites. Uh, but the question is what kind of jobs they're gonna do. And those have not proven to be particularly high paying or comfortable or, or certainly not rewarding jobs uh, for the migrant workers. I mean, one last thing, um, anybody who spent time in China in the cities will know that uh, it's motorcycle delivery is an extremely important part of urban life now. You can get food delivered to your door pretty much 24 hours a day. Um, everything is carried around the city on motorcycles by migrant workers. And it's not a very good job. And there's lots of traffic accidents and uh, pretty brutal. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I remember there being a, a, a spate of reporting in recent years about, about the growth of China's courier industries, industry and the working conditions of those that are, that are making these deliveries, where it's basically a lot of hard work. I think, as you said, there's the risk of accidents. It's not very well paid. You're constantly on a very tight schedule. And also, of course, it's the gig economy, right? So it's not, it's not very stable. That's absolutely right. And one of the things we've seen in recent years is when workers are not paid their wages um, uh, and they go to demand, uh, say, say, they, say they're dressed up as a you know, a, uh, what, whatever delivery service it may be. I, I guess I won't name names, but it could be any one of them. And they'll actually be wearing the uniform and driving around and presenting themselves uh, when they haven't been paid. And it's they've, they've discovered uh, very unfortunately that they're not actually directly employed by uh, those that company whose outfit they actually may be wearing. They're employed by a middle a middleman company. Um, and so that means that often the the, the better known brand, the delivery company that we may have heard of, um, actually is not uh, responsible for their wages. So, so this is a big, a big, a big issue. It's it's very it's also been as you say it's gig gig economy. Uh, they often don't have contracts, or they have very short term contracts. They often are not paid any social welfare benefits. Yeah, so it's tough. Um, so you. You've gone into this a little bit in terms of in some of your earlier answers, but um, I guess to the best of your knowledge, were there and are there still internal policy debates um, in the Chinese government about uh, about the welfare of migrant workers? Um, you know, it's, it seems like if there have been any reforms to things like the hukou, it's been on the margins. 
um, and not any certainly nothing revolutionary or transformative. Um, but again, so like what what have been the internal policy debates um, about these kinds of issues? Well, you know, there's uh, there have been internal policy debates, and and the fate of migrant workers have become uh, issues that have sort of seized the public imagination and, and public concern, including for urbanites repeatedly over the years. And I mean, going back, and I write about this in the book, I think it was 2003, a migrant worker named uh, Sun Jirgang uh, died in police in a sort of a, what they called black jails, which were these uh, detention centers for migrants that were picked up without their IDs. As I mentioned earlier, they often had their IDs held by the factories or the factory managers. So this worker uh, was picked up without his ID, uh, taken to one of these so-called black jails, ended up being beaten to death uh, by the authorities in this jail. That became an enormous issue across the country. Uh, It was right when uh, the Internet was starting to become much used much more widely uh, by by everyone in China. And and that spread the news and. Ultimately, in this case, it led to the official banning of these so-called black jails, which were these, I think they called them custody and repatriation centers, and they used to be a legal thing. Uh, So that was ended way back when, in part because of uh, this policy debate and the public concern. Uh, We've seen similar things throughout the years. Uh, In late 2017, there was the decision to evict large numbers of migrants from cities across China. It started in Beijing after there was a fire uh, which killed some migrant workers. Um, and then that almost, almost became an excuse with uh, city authorities, not just in Beijing, but in Shenzhen and other cities across the country saying, oh, we can't have this. These migrants are living in substandard housing, which is dangerous. This is for their own safety. We're going to just kick them out, and, and we're, but we're not going to let them move into another apartment. We're going to run them out of the city. So, so this is what, so that, that's so things like that happen. Uh, there was some pushback public publicly against that, but again, um, the, you know that policy continued. Uh, you mentioned the HUCO uh, or the household registration policy. Uh, that is a policy that, of course, that I write about in great great detail in my book. I argue that uh, this system which uh, connects the social welfare benefits of each person in China to where their parents are from uh, is at the heart of of, uh, the discrimination that migrants face. And again, there's been talk about reforming this household registration system in order to allow uh, migrants more freely to settle down longer term in the cities and get access to their social welfare benefits there. But that uh, those Efforts have been very, very slow, and arguably there's even been uh, some backsliding in recent years. So one of the common, let's say, counterpoints to people who make observations about Chinese inequality is that while inequality is clearly increasing, the poor are better off and feel better off than they were before, um, even if that used to be the case, uh, are things different now? So, I mean, I think for years that uh, idea that as long as you worked hard in China, you know, you would do better, uh, you know, was true for most people and also was was very important uh, from a government government perspective in order to in, in in terms of satisfying the overall people of China. So, as you say, even as 
income, even as there was income inequality, uh, your average person who might be on the might be not very well off figured, well, as long as I work really hard, uh, I can start to catch up and I, and I accept this inequality. Uh, I, I, there's a, I still have, I still have a real opportunity in this, in this society, uh, sort of this Horatio Alger American myth of, you know, pulling yourself up from your boots by your bootstraps. If you work hard enough, you can, you can make it. So that's been very important. I, I would argue to, the last couple of decades of, of development in China in order to, in, in terms of keeping the population and the people basically satisfied. Um, I do think that, uh, first of all, inequality has gotten, and the wealth gap has gotten far worse than it was before. Um, China now is one of the most unequal societies on earth, which is something that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, even if you, if you look at the if you look, for example, um, at the top one fifth of people in China, they're making, I believe it's about 10 point, a little over 10 times as much as the bottom one fifth. Uh, perhaps this is, would be a surprise. That's actually much more unequal than the United States, which is not a particularly equal place. The United States, it's about that top fifth makes about eight, a little over eight times as much rather than 10 times as much uh, as the bottom fifth, uh, like in China. And if you look at it, look at Europe, OECD countries, um, Western European countries, uh, it's it, that that gap is actually much smaller. So China is quite unequal, and it's getting uh, far more unequal quite rapidly. Actually, Thomas Piketty, the the uh, quite the famous in, income inequality expert, has written uh, on Chinese inequality as well, and it, it seems to be growing on par with. Uh, in, in terms of the gap seems to be expanding as rapidly as in Russia. And it's also roughly not roughly similar to, to the gap in Russia. So this is, this is an issue. Um, I think that uh, right now uh, we're starting to see uh, more and more migrant workers ask uh, about why this system doesn't benefit them like it does people in urban China. Again, when I first started uh, writing about migrants in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, there was an awareness about this policy that I've mentioned, the household registration policy, the HUCO policy. Um, and, and, uh, but, but your average migrant, migrant was sort of quite uh, resigned to the fact that this is how it worked, uh, that they, their children would have to go back to the village or the local township in order to get their education because they were not allowed in the urban schools. The healthcare uh, was, by and large, not accessible to them in the cities because the UCO uh, tied them to the place that they were born or where their parents were born, and they were pretty resigned to this. I do think that that's starting to change a bit. There is a growing awareness that, in in particular, this policy, the UCO policy, is uh, is uh, systematically uh, ensuring that migrants uh, are treated in effect as second class citizens. So in their book, Trade Wars or Class Wars, um, Michael Pace and Matthew Klein argue that China's economic model is kind of predicated on keeping incomes low, suppressing consumption, which frees up money for investment and growth, though clearly at the cost of living standards for the poor. Um, does your kind of on-the-ground reporting experience, um, does, I, I guess, does it, does, it, does it support or kind of back this vision of China's economy? I think it does. I mean, I'm looking, I'm particularly looking at one, one part of the economy, uh, 
which I think you can see what they describe more broadly across the economy uh, duplicated. Uh, so if you look at if you look at the manufacturing economy um, and you look, they, I don't know to the degree they talk about the hukou policy, but the hukou policy in particular has been a uh, a a, a system that in effect artificially keeps wages low. Uh, workers have uh, not had the bargaining power that they would have normally if they were more uh, uh, more integrated into the cities where they work. They have, uh, as I said earlier, uh, their children can't go to school there. They can't get access to health care. Um, in some cases, they can be driven out, as, as I said, happened in Beijing in late 2017 with many of the migrants in other cities across the country, because in effect, they are sort of guests, guests in the city and they are there to work. Um, this means they uh, have a much more precarious position. They're much less and they, they are less inclined to argue uh, to, for their rights and, and, and demand higher wages. Um, so I would argue, yeah, this this in effect suppresses the wages of the migrant workers. Um, it's been very effective, again, as they point out in their book of redirecting capital towards uh, investment, in this case, factory investment. Um, it is uh, a real part of the so-called economic miracle where, or this made in China model where China has been able to create these very low cost products and sell them to the world and become such a, an export and trading power. And that's again, because of the artificial suppression of their wages, um, uh, which allows them to, to sell the products, the factories to sell products to the world at a, at a price that, that otherwise they would not be able to, to uh, offer. Another, another question kind of based on, on other books that have been featured in this podcast. Um, we've talked a little bit about technology, but mostly in the context of, of the factories, automation. Um, but I wanted to bring in technology in rural China. Um, one of the books uh, we've covered in the podcast is Blockchain Chicken Farm by, by Xiao Wei Wang, who looks at how technology is changing rural China for better or worse. Um, what did you see in your reporting about, about China how have new technologies, whether hardware like drones or big data centers, um, I know that's featured a little bit in your book, or software like Taobao, um, which is also featured in your book, uh, how, is new, how have new technologies going to change facts on the ground? Well, it's interesting. Uh, for quite a while, there's been this, it's been a very popular argument amongst Chinese policymakers and amongst others. So the former head of the World Bank actually uh, touted uh, the e-commerce model for rural China as, a, as an effective way to uh, end poverty and as a model that should be used around the world. And the idea is, it's a very simple technological model. It's just the idea that these uh, people in the interior of China uh, who normally wouldn't be able to sell their, uh, whatever it might be in their village they might have, exotic mu mushrooms or organic chickens or green chickens or whatever it is that uh, city people uh, with full wallets uh, might want to buy if they had access to them, uh, they haven't been able to do it. Uh, but with e-commerce uh, and Taobao, um, or uh, what they've called Nongsun Taobao, village, uh, uh, rural or agricultural uh, Taobao, uh, would, would allow these um, migrants to, you know, to, to find their customers in the cities uh, and, and, and sell their goods in that way. And so this has been very important uh, for years. You go to you go to the villages, 
If you talk to a local official, they would talk about how e-commerce was going to lift the fortunes of the whole village and uh, and basically solve their problem with poverty. Uh, I think it's worked to a degree. Um, I spent some time with uh, with Alibaba people looking at Nongsun Taobao in uh, Yunnan province, also in the southwest. Uh, this is a number of years ago. At that point, uh, their vision of how rural e-commerce would transform the village uh, was was not fully realized. So what was basically happening then was, yes, e-commerce was affecting the lives of the villagers, but mainly it was giving them access to new products. So they they you know they didn't they didn't have to drive several hours to the largest near city to buy something. They could actually get it delivered. Uh, but the other direction. The goods that were produced or the or the crops that were grown in these little villages being sold out with e-commerce to the cities was not happening so much. Um, I think it's probably, I mean, no, there's no doubt that it's happening more than it used to. Uh, one thing that I do mention in the book, which is an unfortunate um, offshoot of, of the growth of, of rural e-commerce, is... Um, the, uh, we, we've heard a lot in China about Taobao villages and, and how they've allowed uh, the migrants to not travel so far to find work. Uh, the small factories instead will be set up uh, in a single village in the countryside, maybe not far from where the villager comes from, and they can actually get a job right there. Uh, but what I saw in some cases with the Taobao villages was actually uh, the duplicating of some of the sweatshop problems that I had seen 15 years earlier down in Guangdong uh, on the Pearl River Delta, where these small factories are being set up in the countryside. And the first thing that makes them competitive is they don't have to follow the labor law and they don't have to follow. And they, they may, and the environmental laws may be weaker or they may just ignore that. And so, um, again, in some cases, e-commerce and uh, these Taobao villages or small factories being set up in the countryside was actually creating not very nice conditions at all. Well, and I assume that with that, then the previous model, at the very least, the the big Western company that bought the stuff could be publicly shamed into doing things like audits and stuff. You probably can't do that with Taobao. Absolutely not. And I mean, ironically, often these Taobao village factories were uh, run by former migrant workers. <laughs> so you, but uh, not always, but in some cases they are, um, who are duplicating some of the worst conditions. Uh, uh, again, not all cases, but that, that did happen. Um, and absolutely. Yeah, no, there was there, uh, you know, that I remember visiting these places and I asked them about local regulations and well, of course, you know, but if you're going to actually follow the labor law, you have to pay double on weekends and triple or double overtime overtime and triple on holidays. The labor law is actually quite strong in China. And uh, the, the phrase that I, they kept saying to me was, no, 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 we're under the radar. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we're not going to do that. No, that's one of our, that's one of our, you know, our sources of competitiveness. The fact that we don't have to follow labor and environmental law. So one, one final question. Um, you know, the book was published in, March of 2020, I think that's right. And obviously you would have finished writing your manuscript before then. Um, what's changed in China since you wrote the book, you know, especially regarding, well, especially regarding migrant workers and, and their welfare? Um, obviously the big story is the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but, but, our, but in addition to that, have there been other things that have changed? 
Well, I think uh, clearly the big the biggest thing has been the pandemic, and that has actually had a particularly large impact on migrant workers. Um, as you say, my, my book actually came out to be to be specific on March 10th of, uh, of last year. I was in New York City for the book launch. Uh, that was the week that New York City realized that actually they they um, had a COVID problem themselves. Um, so we had to cut short a lot of my book activities. Uh, so of course, nowhere in my book is COVID or the pandemic mentioned. But what we've seen is uh, with the pandemic um, is an acceleration of uh, this process where the migrants no longer necessarily have obvious jobs in the cities, certainly not in the factories. Uh, so there's fewer jobs. It was already happening because of higher wages and so on. Uh, but there, I would argue there's more resistance to uh, the migrants in the cities today because of this perception that um, that somehow they might bring, you know, that, that being a migrant and traveling around uh, uh, could could spread could spread, you know, could spread COVID or, or could be a problem. Um, so in the early days of the pandemic, so in the first quarter of last year in China, uh, manufacturing pretty much ground to a halt. Um, and that was devastating for the migrant workers. Uh, if you remember the timing of China realizing that, that reckoning, waking up to the, to the pandemic, uh, this, uh, it, it really happened right around the time of the Lunar New Year. So all these migrant workers uh, had gone back to their villages, gone back to their homes uh, right before it became uh, a, a major issue for China. Many of them became stranded in the countryside. They, the factories that they had worked in no longer were in operation. Uh, they were shut down. Um, and in many cases, the places that they had lived uh, we're not welcoming anymore. In some of the more egregious cases, we saw migrants try to come back after things got a little better and and found that they uh, were not welcome in these apartments that they've been renting. In some cases, uh, local uh, apartment managers would do would you know do very unpleasant things like shut off their electricity or, or their water to try to keep them out because they didn't want them coming back and potentially bringing. COVID, although there was no evidence that they were a, a vector or that they were spreading it. So there was a huge uh, hit to the migrant worker incomes. Uh, eventually, the manufacturing side sort of got it together uh, with masks spacing on the, on, the, on the factory line. What has taken much longer is the service economy. And uh, that's not just a supply issue, uh, but a demand issue, of course. Uh, people are uh, less willing to go to restaurants, uh, to, to, to go to these places, um, which it had been big employers of migrant workers. Obviously, uh, there was a surge in delivery business, which again was a, a big, uh, a, a huge employer for migrant workers, but not a particularly pleasant job to have. Um, bigger picture, the Chinese government has been, had this vision that a lot of the migrants, now that they don't necessarily need them in their factories would go back and reinvent themselves somehow in the countryside as entrepreneurs or start up uh, little hotels to do green tourism in places like villages in Guizhou. Um, and <clears throat> I think that, uh, that that trend continues. I don't think the government is particularly uh, excited about the idea that all these migrants come back and settle down longer term in the cities again. And I think that that is creating a real reckoning for uh, the migrant workers of China, which are still, by the way, 
several hundred million people. They make up a majority of the workforce. It's a huge group of people. Uh, it's unclear now what their next occupation will be. It's unclear whether uh, they can go back and, and live the sorts of lives that they had been living in the cities as before. So thank you for listening to our interview with Dexter Roberts, author of The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, The Factory, and The Future of the World. One actual final question. Um, Dexter, what's what's next for you and where can people find your work? So um, I think, as you mentioned in your kind introduction, uh, I am now back in uh, actually my hometown of Missoula, Montana. I'm teaching uh, Chinese politics here at the university and also affiliated with uh, a couple different think tanks, the Mansfield Center here and also the Atlantic Council, uh, something called the uh, Asia Security Initiative, where I'm doing a lot of uh, China-related research there as well. Um, there will be some of that coming out later this year. And uh, uh, the best way to follow uh, what I'm doing is uh, – through uh, Twitter, which I'm very active on. Uh, my Twitter handle is at DTIFFROBERTS, at D-T-I-F-F-R-O-B-E-R-T-S. And um, I also have a personal website, which I, I do if I write something, uh, I will post it there, which is uh, just my name, www.dexterroberts.com. And then just finally, um, as you mentioned, I, I, I do have a weekly, uh, at this point, still free uh, newsletter. It's called Trade War. Uh, it does focus on trade between China and the U.S. and the world, but it's also uh, much broader than that, uh, both looking at the political relationship, uh, the shift uh, to the new administration in the U.S., what that means for U.S.-China relations, and uh, crucially looking at the evolution of the Chinese economy. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and continue listening to the Asian Review of Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Debashri Mukherjee, author of Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City. But before that, Dexter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas.